Baxi's musical podcast. Over the years, there have been quite a few bands that I felt should have become the biggest things in the world, but they didn't. There are probably a bunch of very good reasons for this. One, perhaps, is a chance that I couldn't spot a commercial success if you bludgeoned me over the head with it. Two, there's a chance that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Or three, maybe it has something to do with the band themselves. Now, I'm open to all three possibilities, and that would certainly be the case with The Replacements. Depending on the moment, The Replacements were either the greatest band in the world or they weren't. And on those days where they weren't, They were prone to a perplexing dose of confounding self-sabotage. This was a band that was banned from Saturday Night Live after getting drunk and destroying a dressing room. This was a band that would dismantle the most important shows of their careers and songs in a room full of record company types in favor of playing goofy cover songs instead, like stuff from the DeFranco family or the Starland vocal band, just to piss people off. And on the other hand, this was a band that could also blow the roof off a place with unbelievable energy and passion with some of the great performances of the decade with some of the greatest songs written by Paul Westerberg, one of the great songwriters of his generation. It all depended on what mood they were in, how much alcohol they consumed, and whether or not they felt like entertaining themselves or the people who paid money to see them. The replacements were both exhilarating and exasperating all at the same time sometimes within the same night or on the same record. And while they never achieved the commercial success that they might have been capable of, there's no doubt that the replacements at their best were incredible. And perhaps the greatest example of this came in 1984 with their album Let It Be. Today's selection on Baxi's enormous record collection on Baxi's musical podcast. Throughout music, and by that I mean everything since I started paying attention to it, different styles and specific musical genres have been largely affected by geographical region. Classical music written in Germany is entirely different than the stuff written in Italy or France. Jazz in New Orleans is different than the blues in Memphis. The British invasion was wildly different from Motown. And the New York punk scene in the mid-1970s was completely different than what was going on in England and other parts of the world even though many of these things may have influenced each other and how they progressed. There's lots of reasons for this. Some of those reasons are clear. Sometimes they're not. All I can tell you is that periodically, certain regions or certain cities develop a musical culture that sometimes influences what people listen to in other parts of the world. Sometimes all it takes is for one band in a particular region to break through. And when that happens, it suddenly becomes the musical center of the universe even if it's for only a brief period of time. Cities like New York and Los Angeles and Boston and Athens, Georgia and Washington, D.C. and Seattle have all had their moments, but they weren't the only ones, especially in the 1980s when suddenly the center of the universe found itself briefly coming out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Minneapolis scene wasn't just the hometown of Prince and Paisley Park, although its significance is undeniable, Minneapolis was also the home to one of the most important but brief rock scenes in America. This is a scene that gave birth to Husker Du, Soul Asylum, and, of course, The Replacements. The story begins in 1978 when 18-year-old guitarist Bobby Stinson, a high school dropout, started a band with his 11-year-old brother Tommy. Bobby hoped to keep his brother out of trouble by teaching him 
how to play bass, despite the fact that the rest of Bob's life was riddled with plenty of problems, too. The Stinson brothers, along with fellow dropout drummer Chris Mars, formed a band called Dog Breath. The guys would rehearse religiously in the Stinson basement every day, and every day while they would play, 19-year-old janitor Paul Westerberg would walk by their house on his way home from work, and every day he thought these guys would be a whole lot better if only Paul Westerberg were part of the band. So he did what anybody would do. He hid in the bushes outside the house day after day, getting familiar with their progress until he was ready to introduce himself as the band's new lead singer. Of course, they already had a lead singer. In fact, they had a number of them. But it's safe to say the last one was no Paul Westerberg. As the story goes, one day while Dog Breath were playing Roundabout by Yes, Paul Westerberg had had quite enough. This was the day he walked up to the door, introduced himself, and insisted they needed to fire their lead singer and let him join the band instead. Now, thankfully, Bob and the band didn't need much convincing since they were planning on firing the guy anyway. However, rather than firing the guy themselves, Bob, Tommy, and Chris insisted that Paul Westerberg be the one to let the guy loose. That's when Paul took the guy aside and gently explained, listen, the guys in the band don't really like you. From that point forward, Paul Westerberg was now in the band. Remember, this is 1978. And in 1978, the least cool music that you could play in a band was the stuff being played by Dog Breath. Music by Yes, Ted Nugent, and Aerosmith wasn't exactly going to set the world on fire. Paul Westerberg introduced the other guys to bands like The Clash, The Damned, and The Buzzcocks. Despite being mostly unimpressed with that stuff, Bobby, Tommy, and Chris followed Westerberg's lead because he appeared to know what he was talking about. To reflect the sudden change in direction, they renamed themselves The Impediments, and in June of 1980, The Impediments would get booked for their first gig at a local church hall. And it didn't go very well. Part of that was due to the fact that the church folks were really not big on punk rock songs. The band was also allegedly too drunk to even play them well. And since the church wasn't particularly understanding about the amount of alcohol they had consumed, the impediments were asked to leave and never return. But of course, the only way for a band to get better is to get more gigs. And after getting gigs became nearly impossible and the worst place you could play didn't want you back, it was time for a change. Now, some young bands might see that as an impediment all by themselves. But the Stinson brothers, Chris Mars and Westerberg didn't see it that way. While you could always keep practicing with the hopes of getting better someday, the fastest way around it all was to become a different band. And it was here that the impediments ceased to exist. Instead, they changed their name to The Replacements. Sure, the impediments might not be welcomed back to church halls and suburban house parties, but The Replacements had no trouble filling in, even when their songs and their behavior seemed oddly familiar to some of the people who were there. Now, bear with me on this. In the 1930s, brothers Daniel and Amos Helliker opened Key Bank Studios in Minneapolis. This was a business whose primary function was to distribute and restock area jukeboxes. And the only reason I'm telling you this is because Key Bank Studios would eventually become the center points of the Minneapolis scene. In 1954, the Helliker brothers would recreate Soma Records out of the same building. This would be the record label that would release garage classics like Liar Liar by the Castaways or Mule Skinner Blues by the Fenderman and Surfin' Bird by the Trashman, which I'm sure you've heard because everyone's heard about the bird. So what does this have to do with the replacements? Well, nothing really, except that in 1977, a new record label was started in Minneapolis by record store manager Peter Jesperson, along with local music and sports writer Charlie Hillman and Paul Stark. The name of the company was Twin Tone Records, and by the end of the decade, Twin Tone Records 
would relocate themselves to the old Key Bank studios. And very quickly, Twin Tone Records would establish themselves as one of the most important independent record labels in the country. Now we can talk about the replacements, because during the same time period, the replacements recorded a crude four-song demo that was allegedly recorded in either Chris Mars' basement or in the living room of Bob and Tommy's parents' house. Either way, the tape included four songs that Paul Westerberg had written over the course of many years, and the purpose of making the demo was to land a gig in the area's only true punk-friendly venue, Jay's Longhorn. To get there, Paul Westerberg handed the demo to Peter Jesperson, the record store owner who had just moved the offices of Twin Tone Records to the old Key Bank Studios. As the story goes, when Jesperson listened to the tape's opening track, Raised in the City, it was as if he had been struck by the lightning. The songs were amazing, and despite the fact the demos were recorded in somebody's house, Jesperson jumped to the chance to get involved with the replacements, like the next day. According to the story, Jesperson called Westerberg and asked him if the band would be willing to make a full album. And while they might have been short a few songs, Jesperson and the replacements reached an agreement with Twin Tone Records. They also agreed to hire Jesperson as their manager. Within a few weeks of their live debut, Jesperson made arrangements for them to record at Blackberry Way Studios, a small and affordable eight-track studio in Minneapolis. It was here where the band would record their first full-length album entitled Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. The record received positive reviews due in part to Westerberg's standout songwriting, and that would be the thing that set the replacements apart. The songwriting wasn't typical of the sort of punk music that was being released in 1981. In fact, it's kind of hard to think of the replacements as a punk band at all. Despite feeling like they needed to play like a punk band at the time, the replacements were recording songs that were melodic and self-effacing, poignant, hilarious, plus the guys could actually play when they felt like it. Every song in the album was great, and yet in spite of that, Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash only sold 2,600 copies in its first year of release. Their next release was recorded in a single day in March of 1982, the EP entitled The Replacement Stink, which was released the following month. The songs were just as great, if not better, including Kids Don't Follow, a song that actually included audio of the Minneapolis police breaking up a house party due to a noise complaint. Freaking fantastic, and yet Stink only sold a reported 2,300 copies. So while those first two records didn't exactly burn things up in sales, the band started to come to the conclusion that maybe they weren't really a punk band after all. Maybe they were just going through the motions. Maybe they were something else. So in 1983, Paul Westerberg started to branch out musically and begin writing songs that incorporated country, blues, rockabilly, and surf music. They started to experiment with the songs themselves, sometimes by switching instruments, sometimes just having more fun with more mature-sounding songs. The album was entitled Hootenanny, and it would be released to great reviews, including a glowing recommendation in the New York Village Voice. In fact, it reached number 30 in the magazine's end-of-the-year critics poll. But in spite of that, Hootenanny would only go on to sell a reported 3,000 copies. What the band really needed was wider exposure. And so in June of 1983, Peter Jesperson was able to get the replacements booked at CBGB's in New York, which for the past six or seven years had become the center point for New York punk rock, the home of everybody from the Ramones, the Talking Heads, Johnny Thunders, Television, Blondie, virtually everybody. 
But like so many nights, their appearance at CBGB's was a disaster. Bob Stinson was thrown out of the club before they even hit the stage. They were also booked at Gerd's Folk City in New York's West Village. That gig was a disaster, too, when the crowd cleared the place out due to the high volume. By the end of 1983, the replacement supported R.E.M. for a quick eight-night tour. By this point, the band was so discouraged and frustrated that they began intentionally antagonizing the audiences. And by the end of it, the band was on its last legs and debating whether or not to even continue. To make matters worse, Bob Stinson's notorious alcohol-related health issues were becoming more and more evident. Remember, they had released three records which barely left a mark, all of which are now seen as classics, but they were virtually ignored at the time they were released. The next time, however, would be a little bit different. This time, Paul Westerberg decided to write songs that were more sincere, more personal, songs that reflected his self-doubt, struggling youth, his discontent. He wrote songs about sexual awkwardness and, and discouragement. That's not to say he didn't touch on those themes in earlier recordings. It's just that this time, he really seemed to mean it. Initially, the band wanted their new record to be produced by Peter Buck of R.E.M., but at the time, they just didn't have enough songs to complete a full record, and Peter Buck didn't have the time to wait around. Instead, the new album was produced by their manager, Peter Jesperson, the result of which would be the most important album of their career. The name of the new album was entitled Let It Be, intentionally titled to mock the final album released by the Beatles because in a very real way, the replacements weren't entirely sure that this wouldn't be their final album together too. It was also their way of announcing that nothing is too sacred, not even the Beatles, not even themselves. And that sentiment was reflected in the album's opening track, which Paul Westerberg claimed at the time was the greatest song he had ever written, a song called I Will Dare, a song with jangly guitars and infectious melody that would arguably become the replacement's most cherished song. And while it didn't make much of a dent in the Billboard charts, the song did become a big hit on college radio stations around the country. In fact, I Will Dare was included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's list of 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Of course, it wasn't good enough for them to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but that's a different story for a different time. Now, as good as I Will Dare was, the album contained a number of great moments, like Androgynous, which addressed love and gender in a discussion that was probably more than 30 years ahead of its time. There's the song Unsatisfied, which is perhaps Paul Westerberg's most personal song of his career, in which he totally bears his frustrations with what was going on with his life and with the band. There were other great songs, too, like Tommy Gets His Tonsils Out, Gary's Got a Boner, Answering Machine, and a bold cover version of Black Diamond from Kiss, which in 1984 might have seemed like the most uncool thing that a band could possibly do, and yet it was freaking awesome. While Let It Be didn't become the explosive commercial success that they were hoping for, it did sell better than their other records, four times better. It also became their most critically praised album of their career. Let It Be has been included on the Rolling Stones list of greatest 500 albums of all time on three separate occasions. In fact, Rolling Stone even referred to it as a post-punk masterpiece, which it is. And it's not just Rolling Stone saying this, it's nearly every other reputable music source saying the same exact thing. Let It Be would hold up beautifully over the years and is still considered to be their greatest achievement. Now you would think that with all this momentum that the replacements would be able to capitalize on the success of Let It Be and seize the moment. But as I stated before, as great as the replacements were, they were notoriously prone to sabotaging whatever chances they had to succeed. In 1985, they were signed to a record contract with Sire Records and were ready to record their major label debut, Tim. Unfortunately, a power struggle began to emerge between Bob Stinson and Paul Westerberg. Remember, this was Bob Stinson's band. 
but the fight over control, musical direction, and the amount of alcohol that was being used was starting to drive a significant wedge between the members of the band. There was also a great deal of pressure coming from Sire Records, who were hoping to push the band into a more commercial territory. And while Tim was a solid record, it would be the last time the original lineup would record together. And by the end of 1986, Bob Stinson was fired from the band that he helped to create. The replacements would go on to release three more albums, Please to Meet Me in 1987, Don't Tell a Soul in 1989, and finally 1990's All Shook Down. And while the albums may have been better sellers commercially speaking, artistically, they were well past their commercial peak, to the point where many of their earlier fans had become disillusioned by their change in direction. In 1995, after years of substance abuse, Bob Stinson died of organ failure at the age of 35. And while Tommy Stinson went on to have a long, successful career playing in bands like Bash and Pop, Soul Asylum, and Guns N' Roses, Chris Mars retired from music to concentrate on becoming a successful artist. Paul Westerberg released seven solo records before finally retiring from music altogether in 2016. Again, Everything that was ever written about the replacements tends to focus on the manner in which they couldn't get out of their own way. But the truth is, while all of that is true, there were moments in their brief career where the replacements were absolutely untouchable. And if you were one of the lucky ones who got a chance to see them live on a really good night, then I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you were one of the people who only saw them as a band fighting amongst themselves on stage, then maybe you walked away disappointed. But then there are those of us who got to see both sides of the replacements. And if you did, then watching him play Afternoon Delight or the Gilligan's Island theme song was still better than doing nothing at all. Either way, Let It Be stands as their finest hour. And 38 years later, that's why I've chosen it for Baxi's enormous record collection on Baxi's musical podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Feel free to like it, share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at backsrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.